today's reading is from Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. Jesus is speaking here, and he says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus, we come to you now as a community who desires to like have relationship who desires to commune with you, who desires to take your word and like consume it and work its way into our heart and our lives. And that is not something we can do through the power of words, but that is something you do through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and take like words from a man's mouth and and, like take those words and transform our hearts today that we could leave this place going like, look at the thing that God did that none of us could have ever planned or done on our own. So Jesus, we come to you in dependence and ask for your power and your presence through the Holy Spirit in this place. We love you, Jesus, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. You can be seated. So we've been looking at the parables, the stories that Jesus tells in the gospel accounts for a few weeks now. And today we look at these two parables, driven much by the same point. And they're so short and so poignant, they, they, like, there really is little or very few things to say, if I'm honest about them. But Jesus gives us two pictures. One is about a field and a person that comes through the field and finds treasure in that field. And when he finds treasure, he buries it again and goes and sells everything he has and buys the field where the treasure is buried. And this parable, um, if you really like hone in on it and spend some time with it, there's actually like a, a weird morality question tucked into it. This parable has this question that like, is it right to like take this person's field if you know there's treasure buried in it? Like, is that, is that a moral thing to do? And I don't think, and I think it sounds a bit amoral to us, but I think it's important that we realize like that's not what Jesus is getting after in telling this story. Because it, like, it is a bit like stumbling into someone's house and somehow finding a winning lottery ticket tucked underneath the floorboard that they don't know about and then like making an outrageous offer on the house so you can get the lottery ticket under the floorboard. But we must remember that what Jesus is doing in teaching through parables is he's, he's giving us fictitious sayings, fictitious sayings that picture truth. A parable is a fictitious saying picturing truth. Jesus is not describing a real story where he's like trying to iron out every moral detail. He is talking, however, about things that are relatable and accessible to his hearers. Jesus is not on about all of the fine details. Jesus, in his parables, is trying to communicate a picture of the kingdom of God. 
Something Jesus wants his hearers to be able to see because the direct words he has been using and speaking with seem to not be enough for the hearers. So he shares in a different sort of way, hoping their like, attention is drawn to chew on and meditate the thing that Jesus is really after teaching. Or as I have said before, Jesus is trying to give like handles. He's trying to give real life pictures to what he has been going on about for some time, life in the kingdom of God and its nearness and its presence. That the kingdom of God is present on earth and he is like really trying to help people understand that reality. That seems to be one of the main points of Jesus speaking in parables is to, for people to catch vision about the kingdom of God. It's much, much the same as my prayer for us, for me even, as a community today. In this particular parable, Jesus touches on that a bit more subtly than he has in other spaces. In verse 44, Jesus talks about the treasure hidden in the field. And this word hidden and this idea of parables tucks back together to a, a picture, some, some language from the Psalms. Psalm 78 verse 2 says, speaking about Jesus, I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from a vault. And that is what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is revealing hidden things. Jesus is revealing hidden things. In our text today, Matthew 13, verse 44, I want to read it again. It says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. We recognize that the point of Jesus' parable here is not about a moral statement, about whether the man should have told the field owner or not. And, and surely, if you think about it, some experts of the law that are Jesus here are probably asking this question. But I think the invitation for the hearer then and the invitation for us, the hearer now, is to use our imagination to understand what Jesus is really after, to imagine the kingdom as Jesus is painting a picture. We see clearly that Jesus is by no means like mincing words when discussing what the treasure is. He says that plainly, in fact. The, the treasure is the kingdom of heaven, which is Matthew, the author of this gospel's way of saying the kingdom of God. The treasure is the kingdom of heaven, or the treasure is the kingdom of God. But this man finds a treasure in a field, and to us that may seem a bit odd, but I want you just for a second to imagine yourself 2,000 years ago in an ancient civilization. Like picture yourself with the old clothes. Whatever you think in your wear, like whatever you think they wear in your mind's eye is fine. You don't have to like present this to the class. So like imagine yourself 2,000 years ago in an ancient time in history. And now imagine you just inherited or like gained a lot of money or treasure, whatever that again looks like in your mind's eye is fine. And then I want you to ask the question like, where do you put the money? There's no banks. There's no like economical system the way we think about economics. There's nowhere like safe to put our capital. So what you did quite often, like you hit it. You hid it somewhere in your house, you buried it in your field. 
There weren't even, for us, it's like the modern day equivalent is like take the money and stuff it in your mattress like we see in all the movies. But that's like not even that is happening here. Like just dig a hole and throw it somewhere in the dirt and cover the hole. You see, it's not unusual at this time to take something of value, whether an heirloom or currency, silver or gold, and hide it in this sort of way. I still actually remember this story from when I was a kid and one of my childhood best friends. I remember we were playing and his parents said, hey, like, I need you. I can't say his name because you'll know who he is. I need you to come here real quick. And, and he left the room and then he came back in the room and I was like, what happened? He was like, my parents told me they stashed a bunch of money in the attic in case anything happens. So first, be careful what you tell your kids because <laughs> they will tell their friends. <laughs> that might be lesson number one, but it's that sort of thing. It's that sort of idea that, that this person in the story has hidden money in the field in case something happens. And often then, like it was a much more frequent occurrence. You see, war would break out like that in the ancient Near East. Or you could get killed in town by a horse in a car. I don't know how people died then, but like they died much more frequently. Their lifespan was much shorter than yours and mine was. So we have to like remember that, that burying your treasure and then something happening to the person that buried the treasure or hid the thing would have just been much more common than our modern way of thinking about it would have been. And so this, this man that's passing through the field, maybe he's working in the field, we're not quite sure. He finds the treasure, and the scriptures tell us he has to go and sell everything that he has to acquire the field. So we should get the picture that he isn't a man of means to begin with because of the fact that he has to sell everything. He doesn't just have like an abundance of extra, but he finds enough treasure that it must be worth selling everything and starting over. He had to make himself poor in order to become rich. And he did this, the scriptures tell us again, with great joy because of the treasure that he knew was coming. He did not have, and this is important, he did not have joy like after the sacrifice came. He had joy as he persevered or went through the sacrifice. He had joy and because of his joy was able to sacrifice, knowing the riches that are on the other side. And this, the second parable that Jesus gives us is really similar to the first. Verse 45 and 46 say this, again the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Jesus again opens with the line, again, the kingdom of heaven is like this, and leads us to a story about a, a man who is looking for pearls. And he knows, this man knows, this merchant knows that, that pearls are very valuable. He's like, his specialty is pearls. And so he's looking for fine pearls. And we know that pearls actually were, were likely worth more then than pearls are even worth now. In a fun story about Mark Antony and Cleopatra, of course, who knows if this is true, but it has been passed down in history books from a man named Pliny the Elder who wrote a text called Natural History. It's the largest single volume text that survived from the Roman Empire that we still have today, but this is how the story goes. Cleopatra, 
the queen of Egypt, hoped to impress Mark Antony, and through impressing him, impressed the entire Roman Empire that he represented as he came to visit. And she wanted to display the amount of wealth that Egypt had. And so she bet him that she could host the most expensive dinner party in human history. And he took her bet and showed up to the dinner party and she welcomed him with a drink, a drink of vinegar. And she took off her pearl earrings And she smashed one and put it in her wine. Think more like vinegar again. And vinegar dissolves pearls. So she smashes a pearl earring and puts it in the drink and drinks it. And Mark Antony immediately declines and says that she wins. And refused to continue at the dinner party. Pliny the Elder, who's also considered the first like gemologist in history, says those two pearls, the one drank and the one refused, are, are worth about 60 million sesteri, which in equivalent is 28 and a half million dollars. So she smashed her $15 million pearl, threw it in the vinegar, and consumed it. So per- pearls are worth a lot. That's the point of the story. It's really fun, but pearls are worth a lot. They're no insignificant thing. And this pearl merchant, someone who understands again what great pearls are, is looking for fine pearls and comes across a pearl of great value. We see the same sort of requirement we saw earlier for him to gain this pearl, for him to buy this pearl, that he too has to sell everything. He has to get rid of everything that matters to him. He has to get rid of like the favorite toy tucked away in the closet that you've held on to for 15 years that one day when you have kids, they can play with that toy too. Like he has to sell everything. He has to sell his favorite extra cloak. He has to sell all the furniture. Like he has to sell it all. There is no good. There is no thing under his possession or control that is off limits. And although it's not clearly stated in this parable, even though it was in the earlier one, it would not be wrong because of the way that these two parables sync up together to see that this man does it with great joy as well because he knows the riches that lie before him. And remember, it's an important time to remember like these two parables are not direct invitations of how to earn the kingdom of God. That is not what Jesus is getting after here. Sometimes we get bound up in thinking that these picture stories must happen in our life literally as we read them in order to like win favor with God. And that is not the picture God is painting. That is not the thing Jesus is after but in tension with that. I also would say that Jesus very well may require this of you. That this is not necessarily the point of Jesus telling this specific story that every follower of Jesus is called to sell all the things. We see this a bit later in Mark and we'll look at that story as well with the rich young ruler. Jesus is not requiring like the selling of all things. Jesus is requiring like the the being consumed with devotion to the inheritance, to the riches in the field. That's what Jesus is after. I do think it's really important that we be clear about what Jesus is inviting us into through these pictures. Both of these men come upon something 
they find something of great value. And through this finding, their entire life has been changed. They understand and know about something that is so valuable that others don't know about. They, they, like, do, the others don't perceive the value. But these two, they, like, they have insight and understanding to the valuable that lies in the pearl or in the field. And so their entire life is reoriented around these things. These two men have like revelation. They quickly realize, and this is one of the beautiful things about these parables. These men have revelation of the riches they have access to, and they quickly realize there is no halfway to get to the riches. There is no trying things out and testing the market to see if I can get to the riches. There is no process or pathway of seeing if this will work. For them, this is all or it is nothing. It is sell everything you have or you don't get the riches in the field. Jesus does not leave room in this picture for there to be another way to acquire the treasure or another way to acquire the great pearl. It simply must cost them everything. But because the men know what they are getting, the tremendous amount of riches that will become theirs, they have great joy and can make this sacrifice in great joy. They get joy and then they sacrifice. They get joy. They understand the riches. And then they sacrifice. I think too often we sacrifice, I would even say I sacrifice, hoping there is joy on the back end. Which sometimes, if I'm honest, can be necessary. But I think the picture Jesus is painting here is one of sacrifice because we understand the inheritance. Because we understand the riches. Sacrifice because we have this great joy from knowing what is ahead of us. And whenever we teach the scriptures at River and Way, we want to keep the specific teaching and context of the greater story. If we wanted to isolate this specific parable and derive everything we know about God from this and this alone, then, it, then it, like we could end up believing that the God that we serve is only accessible through our willingness to sell everything. And that's not true about who God is. God is like, the problem with that, if God is only accessible through my willingness, is like it puts me at the center of the story, where access to God becomes more about me and my willingness than it does about God. And what we know is that God actually, like in his goodness, comes looking for us. God comes looking for us. He pursues us. So we, we must be too careful as we look at this parable. We must be careful, sorry, to not read too much into this parable. We want to we capture what Jesus is saying, but we don't want to like reshape our entire understanding about God through a few sentences. That's what the entirety of scripture is for. But ultimately, this, this parable is not about selling everything to earn the kingdom of heaven, but selling everything to receive the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus invites us here to is complete commitment. It is actually what Jesus says is required to receive the kingdom of God. In another parable about the prodigal son, 
paints a picture with the older brother character that one who has, like, he's the one who has earned the kingdom, if you know the story, but he has not actually, like, received the kingdom. And too often, when we begin to think about the kingdom or God in this way, we end up believing in things. We end up believing in lies that aren't necessarily true. Sometimes we believe that if we think in our heads the right things and we can do enough work to work those things that we think into our lives, then God owes us more of the kingdom. Or sometimes we believe that the kingdom of God is inaccessible to us because our lives are too full or too busy or too sinful or too full of shame. Sometimes we believe that the kingdom of God is so far away from where we currently are that we could never actually get to it. That right now, maybe your life, my life, is so engulfed in sin or darkness or distance or like lack of feeling or honesty, shame and pain, that that like if God is real and God really does have a kingdom, it could not be for someone like me. And those are some of the lies that we believe. And the reality is that wherever you are in your belief around some of those lies, that if, if you laid it all on the line, if there was nothing holding you back, if there were no compromised motives, if you gave it all, like all the wealth and the comfort, the convenience of all the little things that ensnare our hearts, if we could eliminate from Brandon's teaching a couple weeks ago, if we could eliminate like the weeds from the soil of our hearts, then there would, it would not be that we now get more of the kingdom, but there is more room to receive the kingdom, more room to be open to the kingdom. Ultimately, these parables are about repentance and devotion, commitment, letting go of everything we value and complete reliance on the treasure that we have seen and that we have tasted. There are a lot of things that keep us from that, from the treasure that we've seen and tasted, but today I want to name two of them. And the first, I want to read a story from Mark chapter 10. If you have a Bible, it would be worth it to turn to Mark chapter 10. Or press some buttons on your phone, however you get there. Technology magic. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. This is a story entitled, like, The Rich Young Ruler. Many of us are familiar with this story. And it says this. Verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 18, why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Verse 20, teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Verse 22, where we'll close this reading. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, 
because he had great wealth. The first reason we often aren't able to receive the kingdom the way we really want to or the way that we've seen others receive it is because there are things in our life that we will not turn over to Jesus. We will not be fully devoted to Christ. What I love about this story in Mark 10 is the thing that Jesus is after. Too often this story gets read or gets taught as the point being that like you have to give up your money. That that's what Jesus is after in the story, that he's after like you giving up your money. And similar to the parables that we're looking at today, I don't, like, I don't think that's the thing Jesus is after. I don't think Jesus is saying, to follow me, you, you have to sell everything. And this space is a bit of a gray space because for some people, that is true. Like that reality, that is the specific invitation and mission of your life. Like particularly for the rich young ruler here, that is true. Jesus is telling him, like, sell everything. But I think the point of the story that Mark is sharing is that Jesus is after the one thing that this man won't give him. And I think that invitation is for you and I. That like Jesus is actually not after you, like he's after you not having a divided heart. You not serving two masters. You not living into two kingdoms. Jesus is after complete devotion. And Jesus has this way about him that he will take his finger and put it on the thing that you were unwilling to give to him. And that's what's happening in this story. And I think that's what's happening in this parable. Jesus wants your entire heart and your entire life to be like caught up in devotion to him. And I think the second thing, if that's the first, I think the second thing that we often do, I think we hedge our bets, if that makes sense to you. That we keep some back just in case Jesus turns out to be wrong. That if Jesus' kingdom doesn't work out the way it's supposed to, then I better protect myself because I can't fully trust the thing Jesus is inviting me into. That his promises may not turn out to be true in the way you think they're supposed to be. And so we, we sell half our possessions, hoping that we can still buy the field. Or said differently, we give half our commitment and devotion to Jesus, hoping we still get the full kingdom of God. It is almost as if we're exchanging goods and that hope, like we hope that if we just give Jesus half our heart, then he won't notice that he won't notice and he'll still like fully give us all the things we've ever longed for and wanted to live out into the kingdom of God as a reality. But, but like we hope that if we just keep these things tucked aside, he won't like see those or notice those and he's still willing to like pull out what, what would look like full devotion to people who have full devotion to Christ. Like he'll, he'll pull the, pour the kingdom out and we, we ache for that, but we ache for that and then we bring the like divided heart and lack of obedience and lack of trust to Jesus. And like it's just, it's not enough soil to like do the thing that he's wanting to do in you. And I think most fundamentally, like we do this because we fail to see 
I think it's a failure of vision. I think it's a failure to really perceive what Jesus is inviting his followers into. I think sometimes, like, we are not the ones fully seeing and fully perceiving like we so often convince ourselves that we are. I think we are the jesters who think we understand and talk like we understand and walk like we understand while all the time knowing deep down our hearts are divided. You see, in these two parables, the men who are willing to sell everything do so because they have good reason. They have seen what is coming. They know what their reality is going to be. And they, because of that, they have no hesitation to sell everything because they know what is on the backside of the story. The point of the parable is not that you would become poor, but that you would become rich. It is with joy that they sell everything, that they get rid of everything, that they liquidate everything. Not that they mourned as everything went out away from them, but they like rejoiced in the process of who God was inviting them to become. We see this most plainly from Paul the Apostle. He teaches us how to do this, like how to live into this reality now. In Philippians chapter three, verse eight, Paul says this, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Paul considers everything garbage, rubbish, that he may gain Christ. Paul has no problem laying down his life to buy the field because he knows the value that he gets in knowing Christ. And I think the invitation for us is the same, that like we be people who can sell it all because we know Christ. That I can sell the field and the stuff and the things or I can push away my hopes and my dreams and my desires. Like I can do all of that because of the surpassing ability to know Christ and that one day, like future glory, Christ will share his glory with us. And Paul points this out time and time and time again. It's how we read in the text, like Paul can be beaten because his future glory with Christ. Why can he be tortured and imprisoned because of his life found in Christ? And this should be the reason we live the way that we do. This is the reason we can obey well. This is the reason we can suffer well. This is the reason we can do hard things because we see the vision of who we are becoming and one day we'll be in full. And we can faithfully press into what God has asked of us and who God is forming us to become because we are with Christ in his presence and one day like we'll be in glory with Jesus. And I think this is the ultimate invitation of these two parables to weigh the value of the riches of the kingdom of heaven. To weigh the value of the riches of the kingdom of heaven. In all of life, we gauge whether something is worth it or not. I really love Hamilton the musical, if you weren't aware. That's new insight. So I love Hamilton, it's my jam. Um, but I also have lots of kids. And because of that, I can't seem to justify the cost of the show. Although I really wanna see it. 
Maybe one day, like 15 years from now when my kids are grown. I don't know. I heard they get more expensive though, not less. I'm not sure. Or for those of you that love the Dodgers and you go to a Dodger game, like why do you not sit behind the dugout when you go? Or maybe you do, and if you do, let me know if you have an extra ticket. But most of us don't sit behind the dugout because we can enjoy the game for quite less money sitting somewhere else. I don't know what a ticket behind the dugout costs, but say it's $1,000. Is that expensive? To me, it is. To me, like $1,000 is expensive. But what if you get to sit behind the dugout and you get all the free food and free drink that you want? And what if you get like a signed jersey from your favorite player? And then after the game, I don't know if Dave Roberts is still a coach, is he, Stephen? Okay. So after the game, you get to go down and talk with Dave Roberts about how the game went and all the different pieces or like whatever the thing you would want to include in that is included in that price for $1,000. Doesn't sound as expensive anymore, does it? No. It may even sound worth it for you. Now, if you're not a baseball fan, you're like, I don't care. <laughs> and that's okay. But when it comes to following Jesus, there is one cost, and that cost is everything. That cost is everything. Following Jesus costs you everything. Is it expensive? Not at all. Not at all. You actually give up nothing when you get Christ, who is everything. When you, when you follow Jesus and it costs you everything, you actually gain the whole world. You gain the whole world. Let us pray. Jesus, we um, are so thankful for the treasure that you are. We're so thankful that like we could be so poor, but because we have you, we are so rich. We have so much. And so God, I just pray that like your Holy Spirit would affirm in our hearts the access of like valuable worth that you have to us. It's like, it's hard to even consider wrapping my mind around. And my prayer, God, has been the same all morning that like we would be overcome, overwhelmed even by that truth again today. There have been many points in my life and the people in this room, I know their stories too. It's been many points in our life where like we would sell the field. Like we would sell everything we have to buy the field because you, like the treasure of you and your kingdom. And I pray that like even now you would begin to like touch the things in our hearts that we wouldn't let go of. That in your desire for us to be fully devoted to you, you would reveal the spaces where we lack devotion. But because we see the like riches of who you are, Jesus, that we would like open our hearts to just be like cut up or filleted by you, that, that you would like draw us more into devotion and commitment and love and adoration and worship of who you are. Because when we see you clearly, 
Like there is no cost that is too high. And so Holy Spirit, would you come and allow the people in this room, myself included, to see you clearly again? To encounter and experience you again? That we would like with sober minds and full hearts be able to say like whatever, whatever faithfulness to Jesus looks like, it is worth it because of the great riches I have in walking with King Jesus. It is worth it to like belong in his kingdom, to be adopted as a child, to, to trust that his ways are better than my ways and his thoughts are above my thoughts. Thank you that you are a God who requires nothing less than complete devotion. It like saddens my heart at my inability to be devoted, but like makes me worship you all the more for who you are and what you are worth. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing?